here. Uh, today, we are in the book of Jonah. Uh, we are on the second chapter of Jonah, so if you want to turn there, that's where we're going to be spending uh, most all of our time. I've got some other passages. If you're a note taker, hopefully you got a copy of today's notes. I did make some extra copies. Of course, there's probably extra copies left because of the weather today, um, but uh, if you're a note taker, hopefully you, you got one of those. And, and I just want to start out this section of Scripture as, as we talk about this fish. And unfortunately, if you think about Jonah as a whole, this fish is the one that really gets a lot of the attention, gets a lot of the glory, gets a lot of the story talked about is really this fish. And unfortunately, uh, brother or sister, this fish is long since dead. Uh, this fish is long since become sand at the bottom of the sea, as far as we know. And so the point of Jonah is, believe it or not, not this fish. However, today is the day that we're going to talk at least some about this fish. I mean, how can we not talk about this fish, right? And, and, and a lot of people think that if you took Jonah 1.17 and Jonah 2.10 out, that all of a sudden this story would become much more plausible. But the fact is that Jonah 1.17, Jonah 2.10 are there. The fact is, is that uh, God has, by his Holy Spirit, ordained and inspired these texts to be recorded. Uh, that in Timothy, it says all of Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Jesus himself, we talked about this last week, Jesus himself, you know, our Lord and Savior, the King of Kings, uh, you know, the, the one that is the reason that we're here to begin with, uh, he believed this to be an accurate, truthful tale. And so, if, if you're in the camp this morning of saying, hold on there, pastor, let's not be too literal with this, and, and those kind of things, I, I want to just share some, some facts that I found for you about this fish. Uh, in the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., captured off King's uh, Knight's Key, sorry, he didn't quite make it to Kings yet. Knight's Key, Florida, in 1912, there was a whale that was 45 feet long. His mouth was 38 inches wide, and it weighs 30,000 pounds. Now, I can't wrap my mind really about, about how big that must be. I mean, we're, we're given these figures, but, but I don't know. Um, but I can tell you this, a fish, in this, a fish that was in this whale's stomach, the time that it was captured... That fish itself weighed about 1,500 pounds. I mean, what was Jonah? Maybe, maybe a, a buck 80, maybe two bills at most, right? Um, also, and if that's not enough for you, not that it's my job to scientifically prove God's word to you. I mean, in February 1891, there was a crew of a whaling ship called Star of the East, which sighted a large sperm whale off of the Falkland Islands. Now, historically, I don't know how much you know about this, but they used to do whaling, and they used to use the blubber and the oil to light lamps and, and do all kinds of curing of products and stuff and, and, and all this kind of stuff. It was a big industry. You probably know that if you know anything about history. Whaling was a thing. But in the Falkland Islands, they, they saw this large whale. They harpooned the whale, just like the book Moby Dick, and in, the, in its death throes, it actually swallowed a man named James Bartley. Okay? A day and a half later, his shipmates, who thought that he had drowned, found him unconscious in the whale's belly. Bartlett lived to tell about the story, and it was published in the newspapers. 
describing his sensations as he slid into the innermost part of the whale, he said that he could breathe easily, but that the heat was absolutely unbearable. Now, his whole appearance was changed by the ordeal. His neck, his face, his hands, all of, all of his body parts that were exposed to the whale's gastric juices were permanently bleached to a livid whiteness. This story can kind of give you an idea of maybe what Jonah experienced while he was imprisoned in this great fish. Now, regardless of what you think about me, I believe wholeheartedly that this is an accurate, true historical event that happened to Jonah. And we're going to talk a little bit about the fish. But the fish isn't the star of the story. So let's pray, and we'll get into this text And we'll talk about how I think this story of this fish swallowing Jonah during this time applies to us today. So let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the wonders of your creation. That you spoke and it was. That you created the heavens and the earth. You created the firmament and the the distinction between them. It is by your command that the sea rolls into the shore and does not go farther than you allow it to. It is by your command that the great beasts of the earth exist and find their sustenance. And so, Lord, we pray that if there are any of us who hear this message, who who think to ourselves, you know, this is a little far-fetched, let us remember who you are, what you've done, what you can do, and what you are still doing. And this story about this fish swallowing a man is no more miraculous than you bringing a sinner to salvation. And you showing us our need for repentance and giving us the means to that through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us apply this text to our lives today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so the first, there's, there's three main things that I want to talk about and then there's some sub-points of those things, okay? So in Jonah 2, the first thing I want to show you here is Jonah's punishment. So if you read with me in the text, you can turn there. I'm, I'm going to have it on the screen for you this morning because this is a, a shortish chapter here. We're actually going to begin in the end of chapter 1. Okay, so if you're in Jonah 2, hopefully with your Bibles the way it's set up, you can go to verse 17 right there. Uh, this is what it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Right? So the first thing of the subpoint of Jonah's punishment that I want you to see is that this was a punishment God appointed, or perhaps a God-appointed punishment. We have to remember who it is here who is in the text. The fish is not the story. He's just a character. Yahweh, the creator. In the text, you see it here, the capital L-O-R-D, the proper name of God, the one that the scribes and the Pharisees and all those people, especially those who are translating and copying the scripture over and over, that if they messed up on this word, they would throw the whole thing out and start over. They did not utter this name. In fact, they left the vowels out of it and they just left the syllables. That's right, right? Syllables, not vowels. Consonants. Thank you. I did tell you earlier, I do struggle with wordage, but we have to remember who it is that's talking about here and whose command it was at the beginning of chapter 1. It said, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and told him what to do, and what did Jonah do in chapter 1? He was disobedient, right? 
And so as we touched on a little bit, it's important for us to understand who it is who is appointing this great fish. This punishment was appointed by God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Matthew 8.27, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? 1 Chronicles 16.13, then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Or Nahum 1.5, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. This is God. And I think sometimes in our Western evaluation of things, Our God, if we're honest, is more of a lowercase g God than an uppercase g God. There's a saying that I'll say to my wife or to some other people sometimes, perhaps I've said it to you. I say it about my own complaints. There's this term called first world problems. Do you know what that means? Uh, I, I hear radio advertisements and it's about, you know, how can you survive with low speed internet? Your life must be miserable. And I lean over to her and I say, yeah, first world problems. You see, our God is a big G, God. The Lord of Scripture is a capital L-O-R-D, God. He is the God. And so this God has appointed. Now, in the NIV, the the word that they use to translate this is actually um, provided. And I kind of like that. God provided this fish. This word appointed means that something was allotted for this purpose. So now some commentators will even say that this was a special fish because what they're trying to do is they're trying to match up our cynicism, our lack of belief. They're trying to allow for our lack of belief. They're trying to say, well, this was, this was actually kind of like a, you know, this was a specially created fish. This was like, um, you, you know, one of those freaks of nature, of course. And, and so they would say something like, you know, this is a specially appointed fish that God has created just for this. But I would say, no, no, no. But that doesn't change the fact that this fish was created for this purpose. Now, if this fish could talk, I believe for the rest of his life, he would be telling the story about how everything in life lived, was, was pointing him towards this moment. How as a small fish, he would practice, you know, breaching the surface with his mouth agape for this very reason. Now, of course, this isn't anything like Finding Nemo, and I make that up to kind of poke fun at it. But, but the truth is, is that God did create this fish. And this fish was appointed for this purpose. And think of the vastness of sea. And, and, and I, don't, I don't know the, the statistics of this, but there's something like, one of you probably do, but there's something like still over like 60 to 70% of the ocean itself is still unexplored, and yet we're shooting rockets off into space and things like that. The, 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 the vastness of the depth of the sea, the vastness of the, the width of the sea, and just how cavernous it is, and then out of all of these places, during all of this time, from, from Joppa to Tarshish, during a storm, right here under this boat, that was probably, in, in my assumption, maybe no longer than this room, in that time, during that period, for that point, right as the sailors throw Jonah out, the fish is there? I mean, what are the chances No, this fish was appointed, it was provided by God. 
There's other things in the book of Jonah that we're going to see the same word in the Hebrew text of what was appointed. Uh, there is a plant that's going to be appointed. There's a worm that's going to be appointed. There's a scorching east wind that's going to be appointed. All of these things show us God's sovereignty. All of us show us that there is a right time and a season for everything. It is as if God is showing off his orchestrative powers in all of these things. That just at the right time, things would happen. Well, there's another thing that's like that. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You see, another thing I think we struggle with in our Western culture or in general, in life, we, we tend to think of ourselves as almost invincible. We tend to not see death as close as it actually could potentially be. But praise the Lord, there's another thing that was appointed at the right time too. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And so it's okay for us to see that God actually appoints punishment. There's a second part of, of punishment or judgment, if you want to call that this, that this punishment was of his own choosing. And then maybe you're thinking, well, I, I don't know, Pastor John, I, I don't think that he said, you know, let there be a whale, and then all of a sudden there was a whale. Well, what I mean by my statement, and I stand behind it, the punishment of his own choosing is um, when we choose disobedience, we choose discipline. Look at the nation of Israel throughout the history of text. God would provide some kind of a discipline for them, whether that would be uh, some kind of outside nation. Usually that's what it was. Maybe it was an inside plague or sickness or something like that. And, and it would be for the purpose of bringing them back and disciplining them for something that they were doing that was already wrong, that God had previously told them what was wrong. And he was doing this out of love and compassion to bring them back. We talked about that a little bit last week too. But Isaiah 65, 12 says, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Why? Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. Galatians 6, 8 says, For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Joshua says, Choose this day whom you will serve. You see, when we choose disobedience, we also choose discipline. If you Look at the nation of Israel, you see that? If you look at your own family life, you see that. And if you look at the word of God, Jonah chose that. Now, he didn't say, have a fish swallow me. What he said was, toss me out. What he was ready to do is he was ready to die for his disobedience. But he still made that choice. He could have said, let's row back. He could have said, I repent. What he said was, toss me out. And so this discipline that we receive that is God-appointed or it's often of our own choosing, of our own making, is for our good. It's always meant to reconcile us to him. Hebrews 12 is a huge part of this, and I've got three sections there that I want to read for you. The first is 12.6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The next one is in verse 8. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And then in verse 10, for they, speaking of our earthly parents, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, speaking of God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. 
And so, like I said at the beginning, this fish is not the center of the story. Would you believe me if I said it's actually Jesus who's the center of the story? And of course, I get that from Jesus who says, a sign like Jonah will be given to you, right? The Son of Man is going to be put in there. So that is a punishment that is also God-appointed, but was chosen. Christ Jesus was appointed to die and chose to take up the cross in our place. Amen. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him because he was anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are opposed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So before we move on to our second point of Jonah 2, I want us to consider and rejoice in our loving Lord who seeks to discipline us now that we might avoid true punishment in the life to come. And that the ultimate punishment was also God-appointed and was taken up by the choice of the God-man, Christ Jesus. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I have authority to lay it down and authority to pick it up. So that gets us to the next point, Jonah's prayer. First there's the punishment, and then there's the prayer, and unfortunately that tends to be the case with us too, doesn't it? It's not often the prayer before the punishment, it's often the prayer after the punishment. And so in Jonah 2, 1 through 8, I'm going to grab this water before I read. Statement unrelated to this message at all, I just want to say something. Isn't it nice to hear hear babies? Um, I just really like to hear babies. Amen. See, just praise along with us. I really do love it. All right, uh, verse one. It says, "Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and You heard my voice." For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land where bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought my Uh, You brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pray, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So here's some things I want you to see about this prayer. Firstly, it was uh, a prayer made out of deep distress. That, That is undeniable. Think of the words that he was using there. But again, I ask you the question, why did it take so long for Jonah to pray? He was on the boat. He saw the pagans praying to their false gods. He even told them that he was a Hebrew who served the real God who made the sea and the land. And he was called on by the captain to pray that that God might have regard, and yet he doesn't. And the same question I would ask for us, why, brother and sister, why does it take us so long to pray? Why must we wait Until everything is burning around us before we say, now would be a good time to pray. 
But I speak to you in the same way I speak to myself because it is so often that it is not until I am in the depths of my distress. It took a belly of a fish to break him, so what does it take to break us? What does it take to break you? I want you to imagine the horror of what he was going on as we as he paints this picture for us with his own language, he talks about it as a a belly of Sheol. This is this idea of going down to hell, going into the grave. He says he was cast into the deep, into the heart of the sea. Talks about the floods surrounding him, waves billowing. This is this, I, I think, imagery even back from like the flood of Noah as this divine destruction is reigned over the earth. He says he was driven from his sight, waters closing over him. He thought that his life was going to be taken and deep was going to surround him. He says weeds are wrapped around his head. He's going down to the roots of the mountains where bars are going to close over him into a pit. If you've ever been into a cave and had them shut the lights off and you can't see your own hand in front of your face, that's the level of darkness. We just read about this man who was entrenched into a different creature in its bowels, and we saw that the gastric juices were starting to eat away his flesh. I'm sure there was some level of pain. I'm sure the smell was horrendous. I'm sure the fear was absolutely unspeakable. He's doing his best here. So he does his best to paint an image. I do my best to paint an image, but really we cannot imagine this. There's other deep distress that we may have went through that we have words to kind of describe, but still it, it doesn't do it justice. Things like a marriage that's dissolving. Things like a sudden death in the family. Things like losing a child or a baby that is miscarried. Or, or perhaps a living child, but one that is still living as a prodigal. Or the emotional and physical bondage of substance abuse. Or, or even for, for a lot of us, the realization that a dream will never come to fruition. But I want to show you that sometimes this prayer that is made out of deep distress, sometimes being in the belly of the fish, believe it or not, beloved, sometimes the belly of the fish is the safest and best place for you to be. Because I want you to also see that this prayer that he gives, this prayer is couched in hope. It's full of hope. It believes and trusts in hope. Look at the prayer again with me. He says, he starts out where he says, I called he answered. I cried, you heard. Twice he says, yet. He says, this might be true. This might be devastating. This might look really, really bad. And yet I shall look upon your holy temple. I know there's somebody here who needs to hear this because my voice is literally, you are watching it be lost in the middle of the sermon. but the Lord and his Holy Spirit are bigger than any vocal cords, and I'll just yell louder. Yet you brought my life up from the pit. 
Psalm 94, 9, he who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? It should be of immense hope to you, brother or sister in Christ, that he indeed hears, he indeed sees, and it does not matter the depths of your despair that you go through. I'm not minimizing that. What I am hoping that you hear this morning is that even somebody like Jonah in the punishment that we receive that is appointed by God to bring us back to him, or just because there's sin in this world and we go through struggles that we don't deserve, it doesn't matter the depths of the distress. We are not left alone. His prayer is couched in hope, even in the midst of his distress. In fact, I want to point something to you. Did you know as a Christian, literally the darkest day in all of history is what brings us our hope? The day that Christ was crucified. There is no worse day in all of history where the God-man was actually murdered by his creation. Isaiah 53, 4 through 10. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You see, the darkest day of all of history is where we find our hope. Jonah knew God would hear him. Jesus knew the Father would hear him. And so the thing that Jesus did say was, Father, forgive them. Let us never lose sight of the hope that we have in Christ, no matter the depths of our despair, he is right there beside you. So lastly, then we have Jonah's promise. Now this is kind of a play on words here because it's both Jonah's promise that he makes, but it's also the promise that Jonah has. Does that make sense? And so as we look at this in the last section of this chapter, uh, verses 9 and 10, but I, sorry, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah up out upon the dry land. I want you to see a couple things here. Firstly, this verse is key to Jonah. Remember what I said that the the fish is not the star of Jonah, although we tend to think of it that way. And, and also, by the way, I, I, I really, this bothers me. So just tangent, just, just for a minute, tangent. We decorate our kids' rooms with like the ark. That was a horrific scene. 
We decorate our kids' room with this nice little fish swallowing Jonah. This is horrendous. This should give your children nightmares if they really understand this text. So the fish is not the center. What's the center? This verse, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord is the center of Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord is the key verse in Jonah. Jonah is called to proclaim this truth to Nineveh. That's the whole point of what he's going to Nineveh to tell them. Your doom is coming, but salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah has proved this truth to the sailors. Hey, your false gods that you want to save you from the storm aren't going to save you. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah has lived this truth out in this chapter. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In, in fact, it goes beyond that. This concept is key to all of Scripture. Think about your Bibles. Salvation belongs to the Lord is the theme of the entire Bible. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, God told them, out of your offspring, there will be a Redeemer. Throughout the history of Israel, the preservation of Noah, the Lord saved him. Through the promise of Abraham, from his lineage, there would be a Messiah. God's promise for all of Israel, and then the fulfillment of that was Jesus Christ born of a virgin, who says that I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me because salvation belongs to the Lord. In fact, it goes beyond that, and I want to show you that this truth this morning is the key to your eternal destination. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not something we can earn. It's not something that we can do. We can't, we can't holy ourselves up enough to make it through those pearly gates. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This truth is key for where you're going to spend the rest of eternity. And the last thing that I want to share with you this morning is this offer of eternal security in Christ Jesus demands a response from you. You cannot be a sideline sitter. You cannot be just an information gatherer. You can't just hear a message like this from Jonah who lives it out and, and, and then say, well, that's nice. I'll file that away for later. Brother or sister, there is a day that is appointed for man to die once and then after that day comes judgment. And just like Jonah didn't know of this large beast leaking, leaking, lurking, Beneath the surface of those waves under his boat, you do not know when death itself will breach the surface of your life to swallow you into its depths. And without the life preserver of Christ Jesus, you are doomed. Jonah recognized his need for a savior in the belly of that fish. Brother or sister, visitor, will you see your need for a savior today? Perhaps you're in a storm right now and you know that you need a life preserver. Perhaps your seas are calm. Jonah receives his salvation. Will you receive yours? Jonah resigned himself to serve thankfully. So this is the promise that Jonah was given and this is the promise that Jonah offers. The promise that he was given is that the Lord will save those who call. And Jesus says the same. And the promise that then Jonah gives in return is, how can I repay 
a good and faithful God who saves one who does not deserve it, who is living out active disobedience, and yet, I like the NIV, provided a fish to bring him back to shore. See, here is the whole part of this message. God uses some weird, weird things to bring salvation to his people. In Jonah, he uses a fish, which many even today scoff at. For Jesus, he used a cross, which even today many scoff at. But that doesn't change the promise. It doesn't change the power. It doesn't change Jonah's witness that tells us salvation belongs to the Lord. So let us seek to honor this promise of our God and the salvation that he has offered and respond in worship, in praise, and in obedience to the God who saves. And if that's not you, if you haven't received that yet, my friend, beware, lest you tarry too long and you find yourself in the depths where there is no escape. Repent and believe today while today exists. Let's, let's pray. God, our